I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Just when you thought there were no more stories to tell about our Lambo lawyer and some of his escapades over the years, here's another one of those unbelievable stories that actually happened. A recent near-death occurred when I blew a tyre on the Lamborghini at 300 kilometres an hour. I was coming down the straight, nearly top speed, and a rear tyre blew, and I had to struggle to hold the car. Actually, I should probably introduce the show first. This podcast is about a narcissistic Lamborghini-driving barrister who's been married three times, taken down triads in Hong Kong, kept those same triads out of jail in Hong Kong, been in movies, starred on TV programs, been a bouncer and a model. His name is Peter Larvac, and here's another story about Larvac, the lifesaver. I'd just done a morning shift at uni. I was walking down to the beach to the club, the surf club, uh, I looked out to sea. Uh, we had the beach closed for a whole week because there's a typhoon up north off Queensland. We had mountainous seas. The, the, the waves were dropping out of the sky. It was just unbelievable. We had the beach closed, and I didn't think anyone would be mad enough to go on the surf. And as I looked out to sea, I'd see two dark heads bobbing up and down in the boiling sea quite a long way out, and I knew we had a rescue. So I ran to the sprinter to the club, Uh, yelled out to Gary, he was in the club playing cards with a couple of other guys. And I said, mate, we got a rescue. And Gary looks at his watch, it was about a couple of minutes after 12, and he said, bad luck, mate, it's your shift, you have to do the rescue. So I ran down the beach, put on a pair of fins to help me stay buoyant and help me stay alive in the big surf. I put the belt on. Is it just me, or are you picturing David Hasselhoff running down the beach in budgies, but in a Lambo lawyer sort of way? Anyway, I'm battling through the seas. I got to Michael, put my arms under his armpits, put the hand up. They reeled me in with the line. I got him to a sandbank. He was able to get ashore himself. He just waded ashore from the sandbank. Then I went after the old man. That was fucking hard because uh, the seas were huge. I thought I was going to die. I finally got to him. He was right out. He's floating on his face. 
His face was dark, his lips were blue, no breathing, no heartbeat. And I thought, fuck, I'm recovering a body. So I wrapped my arms around him, put the hand up. They're reeling us in. And we got separated at least three times coming back in because the waves were so huge. Every time a wave dumped on us, I'd lose my grip. He went straight to the bottom. So I literally had to dive down to the ocean floor to pick his body up again. Got him up. This happened three times. I finally got him in. I was fucking exhausted. I, I, was, I nearly died myself. We got him on the beach. We started uh, heart massage, mouth to mouth. We brought him around after about 15 minutes. He started breathing. His heart started pumping. And then he died again. And this happened about three times. We brought him around. Then his heart stopped again. Then the ambos arrived and they zapped him with a defibrillator and they managed to get his heart pumping properly. And next day he came down the club looking for me. I wasn't there, I was at lectures. So he left um, 500 bucks for the clubbies to buy a, a, a keg of beer for everyone. And then later on he sent me a beautiful thank you letter with a check for about 5,000 bucks, which was amazing. That was a lot of money back in the... 1971 I think it was and amazingly I met both father and son about 20 years later. There's one person who we spoke to early on in the research for the Lambo Lawyer podcast. This person decided that he didn't really want to have how he knows Peter brought up and of course we respected that. His name's Joel and he's known Peter for a long time actually since Joel was a teenager. Joel's a totally different demographic to Peter's other frenemies, and he has a very eloquent way of explaining Peter Larvac. I've known, I've known, known him since you know, like I was a kid. Like, in your view, what's Peter like as a as a bloke? Complicated, <laughs> but I, um, you know, I, I, I got respect for a lot of the things that, like, you know, it, it, from what he's gone through in his life, and but he, um, I, I just feel like. For him, you know, putting the ego to one side and just looking at the big picture would benefit him and everyone else, I think. Look, here's the thing with Peter, like, I feel like, you know, he's just sort of got, you know, I don't know, he's probably told you about his upbringing with his father, yeah. and, you know, you know, and, and like, and you know, like, at school, you know, there was a kid that used to always be bullied and he, he would, you know, stick up for that kid and sort of, and you, you know, he, he does a lot of, he's a, there's a real dichotomy, I think, with Peter, like, he does a lot of things to help people and to, um, you know, really go to bat for them. And, you know, like that when they were doing that Occupy Wall Street thing and there was a homeless person that got embroiled in that and got arrested as a result of that. And he was enraged when he saw that. So he went and protected this guy like pro bono. Um, to, and, you know, so he, he does, you know, he, he, he hates injustice, but sometimes I feel, yeah, it, just in his personal life, it, it, he can... Let let his you know his own views get in the way of the big picture, which is which is a shame. Like for me, I, I've always had like a, a separate connection with him over the years, and been very you know we we spoke a lot over the phone over the years, like from when I was you know in my late teens and uh, onwards. So you know I've always got a good connection with him, but you know he just I, I just noticed there's a pattern with a lot of people that they'll sometimes just pick a battle and then be willing to, you know, die on that hill with, in terms of the relationship, mm. which is, uh, which is a shame, you know. You reckon uh, that's uh, the barrister in him, or is it just his makeup? Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I think it's his makeup that makes him a good barrister. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, unfortunately, I think, um, yeah, there's something like, you know, I've been very transparent with him a lot of times with our conversations and very, um, you, you, you know, just I look at the big picture and like, like sort of separate myself from it and say, like, yeah, you might have this grievance, but you realize by sticking to this battle that that's going to then, going to, you know, you're going to have a shortfall as a result of that and you're not going to get what you want in the end. Like, he's very funny too, like, you know, like the, the stories and things like, you know, he, he used to, re- you know, wrestle back in the day and like guerrilla pressing people in bars and, you know, getting into fights and <laughs> and just, just all this, like, create, like the one guy that tried to, um, um, he accused him of ripping him off buying a newspaper in, in Hong Kong and then the guy like attacked him and then, Gorilla does, he does, Peter does his signature, you know, gorilla press on him, and then uh, then the guy ends up um, getting sued by Peter. <laughs> you know, like, he knows like his parameters of what he can and can't get away with yeah, yeah. from a from a barrister's point of view, and takes it to the end, and then 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 you know sort of takes the diplomatic approach after the dust settles. Joel nails Peter's personality perfectly. Now, Joel and Peter fell out a few years back. And they haven't really talked for a while. As part of the process of putting the show together, we actually send Peter some of the rough cuts of each episode. And when we sent him this episode, he decided that he would call Joel and see if they could mend a few things. And so he did. Then about a week later, Peter called me to let me know that they'd started to reconcile. And although a lot of water has gone under the bridge, he was hopeful that Joel and him could once again share the closeness they once shared. Up until a few years ago, Joel could count on Peter for anything. Is he a good barrister, you reckon, or not? Yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah have he you is. seen him I, in full I, flight? Or? I have. I've been into, I've been into the courtroom. Which, you, you, the funny thing with Peter, he's very unassuming. You know, like if you were to meet him, you'd go, yeah, who is this guy? Well, you know, he has that way of talking where you, you're not quite sure what he's actually... Uh, or what he's trying to communicate, and then he—I think he uses that as a guide. Like when we're watching him work, um, you know, cross-examining people, and then, like in his own words, he just leads them down the garden path, and then once he's got them where they want him, he closes and locks the gate behind them, and then he's like, "Gotcha." That's what's so intri- intriguing about him, you know. He's these opposites, you know. Like he can be the kindest, most generous guy, and then he can be the most brutal, like hard-hitting. Uh, <laughs> you know, guy you could ever imagine. So it's like, yeah, it, it, that, that's what's so interesting. You can't sort of pigeonhole him. You think one thing and then he's coming from another angle. You know, back in back in the 80s, 90s, he was a, a real Lothario, you know. But, but I think he still thinks he is. Oh, oh yeah, 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 totally, totally. Uh, like an, an ageing Don Juan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a real, it's a real... Um, yeah, yeah, which makes it all the more fascinating, you know? It's like, yeah, he's, a, he's an interesting case study. This feels like the perfect place to insert another story. This one's a little more macabre. It's the story of one of Peter's trials in Hong Kong, of him defending a possible murderer. This was a murder case, one of the toughest I ever did. He's a Nigerian, ethnically, who was a British citizen engineer in London. He's working in Hong Kong. He had a Filipino girlfriend and she dumped him. He didn't enjoy being dumped so uh, he threatened her with death. 
made threatening phone calls to her. He wanted her back. She didn't want to be back. She eventually went to the Filipino consulate for protection. They put her in a special refuge for Filipino women who were being abused by their husbands or employers, and there were a lot of those. He found out where she was in this safe refuge place. He barged in past security. He was a big, strong guy. He grabbed her, beat the shit out of her in front of witnesses, then dragged her out of the building, out the front of the building. She was semi-conscious, dragged her around the side, the back of the building where there was a sewage drain. He lifted the manhole cover off the sewage drain and he stuffed her semi-conscious body headfirst into that sewage drain and she drowned in about a few inches of sewerage at the bottom of this drain. That's how she died. It was pretty horrific. And it was one of the worst trials I've ever done. You were prosecuting? I was defending. You were defending him? him. Yes, I was defending him. I had problems with him all the time. He gave me bullshit instructions. For example, he made a full confession to the police in a record of interview that was not only... um, audio tape but videographs so we've got him on video confessing this and I said well mate how are we going to deal with this and he said oh mate that I was um, coached on what to say by the police they implanted electrodes in my brain and they were able to control what I was saying during this record of interview and I said well mate that sounds pretty unbelievable so what we had to do was get doctors to examine his skull to see if there was any sign of surgery to his skull. Of course, there was none. Then there was another damning piece of evidence. He'd left a message on her phone in her flat threatening to kill her. And after she died, her friend, a lady named Elsa Jacoby, found this message and gave it to the police. It was quite a chilling message, his own voice. And when I confronted him with that piece of evidence, he denied that it was his voice. He said Elsa Jacoby was setting him up. Uh, She was trying to frame him. And the voice was just somebody's voice who sounded like him. And they fabricated that evidence to implicate him in a murder that he didn't commit. So uh, we had to send off to London for a voice expert to come to Hong Kong and compare the voice on the telephone message with the voice on his record of interview with the, to the police. And he confirmed for us that it was his voice, so he didn't, had no way out there. But I had to run the trial from start to finish on all these bullshit instructions. And um, it, was, it was pretty problematic because the trial stopped and started several times and it ran for about seven months. We kept losing juries all the time. One jury we lost because the juror was asleep, so we had to start all over again. Another jury we lost when two jurors put their hands up and said they had to go on holidays, didn't realise the trial would be that long. So the judge dismissed them and that jury. We started again. The third jury, two guys put their hands up and admitted after several weeks that they were uh, auxiliary police officers who knew some of the police officer witnesses in the case. So they were unacceptable and inappropriate. The judge had to abort the trial again and bring in a fourth jury. 
And by now, the accused was getting pretty pissed off by all these adjournments and interruptions and jury. And he's in custody. He, he's in custody, of course. And I went down the cells to try and explain it to him what had happened. It was no one's fault. And he says to me, oh, yeah, this is all, this is all your fault, isn't it? Blaming me for it. I said, how the fuck is it my fault? He said, it's a white man thing, isn't it? I said, mate, you better withdraw that and apologise because if you don't withdraw it and apologise, I'm walking and you're on your own. And he ultimately did apologise and uh, we batted on with the trial. But the whole trial was a nightmare. I asked several times to be allowed to withdraw from the trial, but the judge didn't want me to do that because if he remained in that trial unrepresented, would have been a nightmare for this judge and he didn't want to handle that, so he begged me to stay in the trial. How do you defend people like that, Peter? With great difficulty, especially when your instructions change from day to day. I'll give you an example. Part of his instructions were that Elsa Jacoby set him up with this fabricated message on the dead girl's voicemail. And I said, well, why would she do that? She says, well... She hates my guts because I had a sexual affair with her and I dumped her. It was a case of hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So she decided to have a revenge and uh, set me up for this murder, which I didn't commit. That was her motivation for doing that. So then he gave me chapter and verse instructions of the affair with Elsa Jacoby, how often they made love, blah, blah, blah. And um, when it came to me cross-examining Elsa... Of course, she denied it. This was all bullshit. Uh, she was a God-fearing Filipino lady who was married with kids and wouldn't dream of having an affair outside of marriage, let alone with a scumbag like him. And then it got even more bizarre when he gave evidence. So I had to put him in the witness box at the end of the Crown case because he had to explain to the jury why he was caught several houses up the road hiding under a veranda when they arrested him. And when I took him to the part about Elsa Jacoby and asked him to describe um, his affair with her that caused her to tell lies, I said to him, uh, do you know Elsa Jacoby? Yes, I do. Um, how long have you known her? So many months. Um, did you have an affair with her? He says, no, we're just friends. So did you have a sexual relations with her? No, never touched her. So his instruction, his evidence under oath was completely different from what he told me that I spent the whole day uh, cross-examining this poor lady who was an innocent in this whole situation. So for me, it was a nightmare. It's the worst trial I've ever done. Did he go down? Oh, absolutely. The jury took half an hour to convict him and he got life, which in Hong Kong means life. None of this bullshit, uh, 10 years and you're out. So I'm guessing you didn't actually mind the fact that he went down and you lost. Mate, I was secretly clapping under the bar table when the jury came back with guilty. This guy was an absolute scumbag. One of the worst examples of humanity I've ever come across. The way he brutally murdered this young girl, but all the lies and bullshit that he fed through the trial, just beyond the pale. Once in Hong Kong and his ride mode is Harley and this guy comes past and like cuts him off. He clearly didn't check the blind spot and clips the front of the wheel on the Harley and nearly sends him flying off the bloody thing. And this guy takes off ahead, so he's like 
screw this guy. He takes off after him, eventually catches up with the guy at the lights and props the bike up with one arm and, and gives him a signal like to wind down the window. And he just leans through the window and punches the guy in the head and then drives off on the bike. But he gets the guy's, he gets the guy's number plate and then, because uh, he was um, working for the um, Queen's Council then, and then tracks this guy down to press charges for reckless driving. <laughs> 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 and they're like they're like a run-of-the-mill kind of story with him. You know? He's the sort of guy that if you had an issue and it was 1.30 in the morning and you called him, he'd be right over there to help, you know, right there. To, and then on the flip side of that, then he'll do something that's just like, hang on, this is like totally out, what you would think would be out of character, but then knowing uh, know, knowing him, he'd go, of course, totally within character, you know. Joel, is he wealthy? Do you reckon or not? Is he wealthy? Yeah, no, nah, he is. Yeah, he's done well for himself. Because he doesn't look it, right? No, no, that's the crazy thing. Like, he'll look like, like, has he got enough money to get off the bus? And then the next thing he's jumping in a $600,000 Lamborghini and roaring off down the road, you know? In the next episode of The Lambo Lawyer in 2005, you're diagnosed with cancer. Yeah, prostate cancer. They found a small lesion on the prostate luckily it was early stage low grade i'm I'm going to ask the obvious question here do you have an issue with women what do you mean an issue no i treat women extremely well i love all women all shapes and sizes i've always got on much better with women than with men and some of my most beautiful friendships have been with women rather than with men no no not at all do you think you're aging gracefully aging fantastically I, I look much better than most guys my age in almost all guys my age I've never seen any guy my age who looks like me who's still got their hair who's still got great skin and who's got the muscle mass that I have <laughs>